Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Doctors of Running podcast and YouTube. This I am Matthew Klein, and I have an esteemed and wonderful guest today. Simon Bartol was nice enough to come on. Simon, how are you doing today? Hi, Matt. I'm fantastic. Thanks, and uh, it's uh, it's a great honor to be on your podcast. I've been following following you guys very closely, and I, I love what you're doing. And I can see that it's developing very nicely for you. So, well done. Thank you very much. It's always like a, we're trying to see where this goes and keep on our toes and it's definitely keeping us there. So um, one of my big questions starting out, you know, Simon has obviously inspired quite a lot of what I've done. So I told him earlier, I'm a little starstruck. So I appreciate you being on. Um, for, to just give a little background on yourself, can you tell people a little bit more about your journey? Um, which I know this could, you could probably write a book on this at this point, but a quick little synopsis of your kind of journey as a clinician and how you got into the footwear world. Yeah, well, I'm not sure how interesting it is, but uh, I mean, I started out life, believe it or not, um, as as a zoologist. So my, my passion in life has always been um, animals and wildlife, and my first degree was in zoology and physiology. And of course, by the time I finished that, I was completely and totally unemployable. There was just no hope of me getting a job. So I had to try and figure out something else. And my, my dear old father, who's still alive at the grand age of 93, suggested that I look at dietary mm-hmm. and uh, you know my response that was pretty typical of most people and that is well why would you want to look at feet all day but I did it anyway and that decision has taken me to about 46 countries for Olympic Games to world track and field championships and it's just been the most incredible journey um, and of course it's also exposed me not only to the world of clinical sports medicine which has been the bulk of my professional career and, and just something that's been incredibly rewarding, but also exposed me to the, uh, the wonderful wacky world of athletic footwear. So, you know, it's taken me through a long journey with, um, with ASICS. So I worked for the global body of the ASICS corporation, or as you say, in North America, ASICS. Um, and uh, yeah, I was with them for many, many years. And that actually, Matt, started out in quite a weird way, as these things often do in that I was a young podiatrist working in sports medicine and I was basically shooting my mouth off telling people how crappy the current um, Australian football boot um, ranges were. And the local rep for ASIC said to me, well, put your money where your mouth is if you reckon you can do better design a boot for us. So that was the beginning of a very long collaboration with ASICS that was a wonderful collaboration with many incredibly talented people. I spent a lot of time in Japan and the USA. Then I went back to clinical sports medicine for a while in 2014 and then just fielded this very random telephone call from a man in France who said, will you come to a place called ANSI, which I'd never heard of? So I said, yep, I'm going to be in Manchester at a conference. I'll come across to France. They put me in this hotel in this town called ANSI. Now, just to paint a picture, ANSI is a 12th century medieval village on a lake in the Alps. I'd never heard of it, but it is the most stunningly beautiful place. And they put me in this hotel that looked right at the lake and right at the mountains. So I'm thinking, well, this is pretty nice. <laughs> so I went and gave them my lecture and they took me in a room with their, their three VPs and they said, we'd like your opinion on these, uh, on these shoes. And I said, well, may I be frank? And they said, yes, I think they're absolute rubbish. And they said, well, so do, so do we. Would you like a job? And that's literally how it happened. So it was a total setup. I didn't know it, but I was being interviewed for a job. So I ended up spending four and a half years in beautiful Ancy in France, um, heading up the road running development program for Salomon, who are famous for very high quality um, trail running 
footwear and and alpine sports so that's a potted history of where i've been mate it's um it's been quite a journey and uh yeah i'm i'm, I'm very grateful for the the opportunities i've been given in in my profession and you are now currently with x-blades correct me if i'm wrong yeah, I'm now, well, I, I work as a, I, I independently contract with my partner, Paul Griffin, uh, my business partner, Paul Griffin, to the industry. So um, I, I work with X-Blades and X-Blades are an Australian company who um, uh, predominantly make football boots for all codes. So predominantly Australian football, that crazy game that I love so much, um, but also um, both codes of rugby and, and also uh, soccer. And we've just branched out into a, a sport called netball, which is a huge Commonwealth sport. It's a, a little bit like basketball, right. but it's an interesting sport. It has unique biomechanical challenges. They have this really dumb rule called Rule 9.6.1, which allows you to receive the ball, but you're only allowed to take one step after you've received the ball, which means you have a massive, rapid breaking force. And so netball has been called by a friend of mine, a sports physician in Melbourne, has been called a sport that was invented by an orthopedic surgeon because they all ruptured their ACLs. So, <laughs> Based on that mechanism, I'm not surprised yeah. at all. Yeah, they, they could, they could revolu- revolutionise the injury rates in the sport just by changing one simple rule, but it will never happen. Um, so it's mm-hmm. really quite odd. Yeah, so that's X-Blades. And uh, yeah, doing a little bit of other stuff, we've just um, developed a really uh, disruptive shoe for field hockey uh, with a company in Belgium. Um, so that's all, th- these are you know, really fun projects because basically for a guy like me, a shoe geek like me, you, get, you pretty much get given a blank canvas and they say, well, here you go, what do you want to do? And that's like the ultimate for somebody like me because we can just go nuts and, um, right. and think about what we might want to do. And again, speaking as yourself as a shoe geek, some of the things that you share on on social media and through your website of going, hey, just these amazing things from both Salman and um, Essex that these dis- designs that it's so cool to realize a lot of the stuff that, that people say is new now from different companies has been done before and the stuff cycles back and it's cool to see when you're given free reign, what can happen in terms of that development process. That was, that was very, very cool. Uh, oh, well. So true, yeah. I mean, it's just, uh, it goes in cycles and, and I do think people look at, you know, I think the carbon fiber plate's a classic example. It's been around right. for ages, but uh, I guess we'll get on to that a bit later on. But yeah, it does it yep. does go in cycles for sure. Right. So speaking of which, so carbon fiber plates seem to be one of the big focuses of kind of, and especially in the running industry at the moment. And I, I you are totally right. And you know this better than I do that, that this, the carbon fiber plates have been around. They're not new and they've, they've cycled through a couple times from what I understand. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second, but with people focusing on that, um, what do you think, there's a lot of stuff happening right now. So people are very focused on that. What do you think are some other things that are happening right now in development for all kind, not just the running industry, but maybe like kind of the footwear industry in general. That people, what are some big questions or trends that people are are missing at the moment that are worth paying attention to? Yeah, well, I can I can only comment on the things that that I've been actively involved yeah. in because every company has their, uh, you know, has their little secret laboratory where they're doing they're doing stuff behind closed doors and and we don't know what's going on. Um, but I think some of the the issues that everybody's talking about is um, obviously the advancements in materials are super important. Um, so there, there is a rapid advancement, advancement in material capability and manufacturing processes. So things that we, we couldn't do a year ago, we can do now. And that feeds back specifically to things like 
the way you develop a last. So the last is the 3D model the shoe is made from. And we can now um, quite easily um, take a laser scan of, of one of your patient's feet. Right. We can uh, take the biometric, um, we, can, we can gather biometric data. <clears throat> we can upload it to Taiwan. They can 3D print a last from that data and they can quite simply make a shoe from that data that will be back in your practice in about a week and it will cost about $40 more than off the rack. So that capability is possible today, right now. We could do that for you today. Wow. So, so, so this is because previously, um, when you talk about things like an anatomical last, an yeah. anatomical last, bizarrely, looks like a foot, whereas the traditional lasts are completely flat on the bottom, so they don't right. look like a, like a foot at all. And the reason they're flat on the bottom is that the manufacturing procedures demanded that's the way you did it because you had to wrap the you had to wrap the upper around the last and stitch it on the bottom. Right. Well, now you can actually build a shoe that is completely contoured on the bottom. So you get full contact of the contact point of the shoe with your foot. So you redistribute the pressure a lot more evenly than you would normally. And this is quite a big deal because this right. has only happened. But, you know, there's all sorts of things happening. Like we, we now have the capability with um, machines called Desma machines, which means that we could... Uh, we can bleed um, PU in the midsole, which means that you can place different viscosity material in different parts of the midsole, which means that in a game like basketball, you can build a shoe that's completely different for um, different players on on, on the boards. Um, so you've got, you know, the point guards are playing different games to the forward. So, and, and same in American football, you know, you've got, you've got, that's probably the great example that you've got players who are, they're actually playing a completely different game. You know, they're, they're, not pl they're not all playing a uniform game, so their footwear requirements are different. And it's even things like, well, how come when you buy a shoe, the left shoe is the mirror image of the right shoe because almost no one's got a mirror image foot. No. So, so all the these things... The game. Yeah. yeah, so, so that's, that's one big thing. Um, I think everybody's looking at geometry, Matt, so... Mm -hmm. Um, in the past, you know, a traditional shoe has been, has had quite square or angular edges. Yep. Doesn't really make any sense right. for any sport when you think about it. Um, it's much more sensible to have rounded contouring because right. you're not landing on a knife edge, basically. You, you've got more surface area contact with the ground. So that's evolving. Um, it's right. present now, but it's certainly, um, it's certainly on the way. Look, the other, the other really huge thing that I think everybody is looking at and everybody is concerned about and everybody has a responsibility for is the environmental side of, of the athletic footwear industry. Um, you know, to give you a little bit of a, an, an idea, um, Salmon make about, about 10 million pairs of shoes uh, a year and that carbon footprint is enough to power the city of ANSI, which is 100,000 people for one year. Um, Nike don't do that. Nike make 26 pairs, but they make 26 pairs every second of every minute of every hour of every day, almost a billion pairs of shoes, which will power New York City. That's the carbon footprint. Oh. So, so this, is a, this is a really big and important discussion we have to yeah. have, and it's a really important area that we have to solve, really, because mm -hmm. it's not only that, but it's landfill. You know, we've got half a billion pairs of shoes in landfill. So uh, there's, there's some very promising stuff happening. You know, we're looking at um, how you might be able to use things like potato starch. So you can literally put a particular starch, starch in a midsole 
Um, it attracts a bacteria that breaks down the whole midsole. You then bury the shoe and a potato will grow from that shoe and you start the whole process again. So <laughs> there's some pretty cool stuff. Recycling. That's on another level. That's awesome. Well, yeah, well, I mean, the answer, the answer is not recycling. The answer yeah. is degradation um, because ah. recycling, recycling just continues the same problem. It's better than where we are. Right, that's true. But complete, complete biodegradability is the goal, I, I think. That's what, right. what we have to aim for. Well, basically so there, there's, there's just a few of the big issues yeah. and, and a few of the things that we're looking at. Um, I'm also particularly interested in uh, input load, you know, things like vibration hasn't been talked about a bit, but we can maybe right. talk about that later. Yep. I would love to talk about that because that's something that you, I've, you've discussed quite a bit and that's something that you would be very aware of a couple of years ago. And I know something that's been very important with your, a lot of the designs that I saw come out through Salma, which is, again, I, hopefully it got me thinking, hopefully it got a lot of other people thinking about what does that look like? How does, is there, there's another factor just besides load, right? And this is never just one variable. There's multiple variables in that. And I feel like that's. Yeah. Yeah. There's about, there's actually about nine important ones, Matt. Mm -hmm. So when you, you look at pressure, accelerations, joint right. moments, um, ground reaction forces, those sorts of things. But the interesting thing is that the vibration um, is probably in the vicinity of 20% of all of those. So mm -hmm. it's a, a very important input load. I mean, I, I've I've been very privileged to um, to be able to work with with Ben O'Neill, uh, yeah. who I'm sure everybody knows of, yep. and you know he's just the most extraordinary brain. He's one of those guys, you know, you sit in a room with him and you just think this dude is operating at a completely different intellectual level to me. <laughs> but he's um he's you know I think his his goal is to sort of crack this vibration nut before mm -hmm. he dies because he's theoretically retired, but he's nowhere near retired. And it's just to give you a snapshot of what it's all about. So basically. Yep as I'm talking to you now, I'm generating a sound wave, which is a vibration. And everybody who's listening is interpreting that because the little bones in their ear are vibrating and, and that's being converted to a signal that, that, that you can interpret as sound. If I want to dampen that, then I could go into a, into, a, into a sound booth and they've got baffles on the wall and special construction. And the idea behind that is... Oh, we got a little technical difficulty. I think we may have lost Simon here. Hold on. Frequency. This is super important because mm -hmm. in running footwear, if you can identify particularly the frequency yeah. um, of the input vibration and you understand the frequency that tissue vibrates at, so for example, we understand the Achilles tendon vibrates between 10 and 30 hertz. We know that. If we can shift the vibration frequency of the midsole, Beyond 30 or under 10, then we avoid something called resonance. And resonance is what you get when you hold a baseball bat and you hit the ball off the sweet spot and you get that nasty vibration, okay? That's resonance and it damages tissue. So we know it damages muscle, tendon, nerve, muscle, blood vessels. Right. Um, and in people who operate vibrating machinery all day long, they actually get a particular syndrome. It's called hand-arm vibration syndrome. It's like a very, very severe form of Raynaud's phenomenon where the blood supply shuts down. So vibration is really important. And, um, you know, Salomon, we spent, we spent years and many millions of euro trying to understand it. And I think Salomon have now got to a point where they can rightly claim that they are probably leading the field in, in understanding how you might change it with footwear. The other interesting thing to note, here is that the other way that vibration is attenuated is by muscle contraction so it's a very important contributor to fatigue because if you have to contract muscles to attenuate vibration 
then over the course of a 10K or a marathon, mm-hmm. you, the muscles will become more fatigued. So th- this is sort of wheels within wheels of, of some of the stuff we're looking at. And so that, so some of the recent discussions, we'll go into our next comment about how this kind of affects the body. I know we discussed earlier, sometimes we don't know, but you just gave me a lot of stuff. We do know there's a lot of things of, of how vibration, some of those components affect some of the tissue down to the go. It like the exact hurts that seem to cause issues. Um, there's been discussions that some of these, although the focus has been on plates, some of the new foams that have been coming out, the designs may change that vibration that might have something to do with why people are able to go faster longer. What are your thoughts on some of that? And not just in marathon, you know, obviously a lot is being used in marathon racing shoes, but now these are being expanded into other footwear categories. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, look, the, the issue we have with all the plated shoes is that there's yeah. only one company that's actually, um, uh, that's actually been subjected to scientific scrutiny or so right. published, published information. That, of course, is Nike. Right. So we've got all these other great shoes on the market and they, they look good and we're getting good wear test results back but we don't have any data on how they work. So unfortunately, or fortunately, the, yards, the yardstick is the, the Vaporfly 4% right. family. So the 4%, the next percent, and the Alphafly. And we have now you know, pretty good information on, on, on uh, a lot of what it does. In terms of vibration, we have no information other than a deep suspicion that you can watch somebody like Elliot Kipchoge cross... Hmm the finish line after 26.1 miles looking like he could do it all again. I mean, he right. didn't look even remotely fatigued. You know, he's jumping around, bouncing around and, and I, you know, I've actually never seen that before. So he did not look fatigued. So the foams can be super important and it's not just the foam, it's the construction. So it's how you actually put the shoe together. That's probably quite important in terms of, um, attenuating that that vibration um, wave as it goes through the midsole. And um, we don't know for certain, but um, only Nike know this. And, and you know, talking to Ben I, I, and Martin Short, and I interviewed him not that long ago, and they're, they're all basically saying, well, maybe Nike don't, don't know, but maybe Nike just lucked out here. Yeah. Maybe they just did something based on their science, which would be strong, that did actually... Um, have an effect on fatigue and that that does actually make complete sense to me with what little I know about vibration so it, it seems sensible that, that would be the case and that would probably be down to not the plate or the foam but the construction so it's again it's, and we talked a little bit about this that it's not one variable it is the accumulation it's the whole recipe that really makes this and somehow Nike and I, I remember listening to that kind of stuff that, that somehow Nike may have just gotten lucky they just found the, the formula and everybody's also trying to reproduce it, not asking the right question of how does that stuff really go. Together. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. And I think yeah. I think what people also need to understand is that you can't you can't make a, a straight line connection between what we saw with um, the Alpha Fly and Elliot Kipchoge to you and I, right? But because that was that shoe was made for him, so every nuance of that shoe would have been. Uh, scrutinized and it would have been balanced for him. I mean, um, the, the smart money is that shoe probably had three plates in it rather than one, which is in the production model of the Alpha Fly. So, and this is typical of elite. So, right. um, I, I was chatting with Dina Castor, you know, the American record holder, only only a couple of weeks ago, and you know, she had her shoes bespoke made. made. The ASIC sent a, a guy, a, a very important man from Japan, to mm. come out and do all the measurements and build her shoes for him. And that's what happens with the elite. So this is one of the problems, Matt, that 
people are thinking, oh, great. Yeah. Well, I've just seen Elliot Kipchoge run. I'll go and get that shoe and bingo, it'll be great. I'll, right. I'll, I'll run faster. But it doesn't necessarily work that way. And I think it would be smart for us to broaden our vision beyond the plated shoes and just say, look, you know, they're, they're just a very small cross-section of the, the total um, athletic footwear range that's available. And there are other really interesting product out there that may, may well work or even work better for a lot of runners, especially the, the weekend warrior type runners. So you're, so what I'm, what I'm hearing is again, we have to remember that, and you, you know this better than anybody based on your work. And it, a lot of people don't know this, that most of those shoes, those top elites are wearing, those are not commercially available. Those have been every portion of that shoe has been tested and tuned to their body, which is going to work best for them. We know from even from the current literature, right? So McLeod at all those guys, Jared Ward that was on part of that study looking at optimal sole stiffness, right? Even some of the Vaporfly studies found that there's variability in how each person reacts to even the market model. So some people had, you know, an eight to 10% increase in their improvement in the running economy. Other people saw it got worse, right? So it, it has, shoe has to be tuned exactly to them. And each person has a unique, the stiffness is just one part, right? Cause that's what McLeod was, I, Remember, remember correctly was looking at the stiffness is just one part of that overall thing, but people have to realize that the entire shoe has been like the last, the stiffness, the tuning, every aspect has been made to that athlete. And so that creates a totally different thing than what people are buying. So there has to be, when people put these on and assume, oh, I'm going to like run faster. I would assume there's also a cognitive component of marketing. I don't know if you could call it placebo effect because that usually has a negative connotation, even though it can be quite positive. Um, and you use the term smoke screen, right? About going, Hey, this can be the greatest thing. Is my, am I on the right track with that? Oh, I, I think a hundred percent. I mean, I, I'm just sort of trying to digest because you, you've, you've sort of thrown out several little pearls there. I mean, I, I, I have, I have absolutely no doubt there is a placebo effect with this yeah. show. And I, I personally think placebo effect will become embedded in mainstream science and medicine mm -hmm. before too long, because it can be a very positive thing, but yeah. You know, it's like, it's like you, if you've got somebody who comes in with plantar heel pain right. and they say, hey, doc, um, what do you think? And you say, well, that's the worst darn case of plantar heel pain I've ever seen and I've got no idea how it's going to go. And the second scenario is you say, well, I'm going to tape it. I expect you to be 50% better in a week and then I'm going to do X, Y, and Z and you'll be 75% better in a month. What's going to happen, you know? Right. So so the, the, the power of suggestion yeah. um, and, and mapping out a plan is very, very uh, important. If you've got a shoe and everything you read says you're going to be 4% more efficient and the punter reads that as 4% faster, which is not the case, mm -hmm. but the punter reads it that way, well, then you're probably going to somehow your brain, which is a very, very powerful supercomputer, is going to interpret that and you probably are going to run faster. Um, so we, we shouldn't underestimate that effect. It's quite important. But the other points you brought up, I think, are, are, are very important and something that, that, that people do need to think about. And I, 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 and you, I've learned a little bit from you and also from personal experience going every, per, and this is the same thing in clinic, right? You mentioned that people don't really, this is one of the, I have a, I'm fortunate enough as young as I am to be mentoring a wonderful individual in the clinic I'm at as a, as a manual therapy and, and orthopedic fellow, uh, physical therapy fellow. And that's something I remind him and he reminds me all the time is that, you know, you always have to ask yourself, is what you're doing a placebo? And that doesn't mean it's bad right? You always want to have the best evidence-based thing of what you're doing. But sometimes when people get in there, that, that person in front of you is a very complex supercomputer human being creature. 
and knowing that the power of suggestion has a lot of impact on you can have the best evidence-based thing in the world and it may it will do nothing if you don't make sure they're on the right track with you and i think you're totally right that that you know as as much as i as i didn't want to admit this that marketing has a huge component because i came from the biomechanics do everything right and i have as a clinician through the training i've done realizing you know what that doesn't always work the way we think right we try to get the best answers we can but there's always people are so unique right and that's why you know one shoe isn't going to work for everybody you know if everybody had the same shoe that elude had people still wouldn't be able to run a sub two-hour marathon because it that's tuned to him it's an individual and trying to find in today's world we have so many options it's going to be a, a blessing and a curse but trying to find something that works uniquely well to each person can be challenging right unfortunately things are starting to adapt a little bit more I, I, look, I think yeah. that's 100%. I mean, this is yeah. people, I, I, I get so tired of, you know, people asking us questions like, what's the best shoe for me? And the answer is, I have no idea. Right. I, I don't I, I don't know. Um, I can't see you. I can't examine you. I can't, right. I, don't, I don't know what your experience is. I don't know what your goals are. I don't know what your body weight is. I don't know what gender you are. You know, so I don't know what your biomechanics are. So I think, this is a trap we've fallen into before, Matt, with, right. you know, especially with things like barefoot running and minimal, minimalism, which yep. I'm at pains to say I don't think is good or bad. I just think it depends how you um, exploit it. Right. But, but it, it, was, it was presented as a panacea for all runners. And, of course, it never was. And mm -hmm. it just like... It created just some like great the, business for us, though. <clears throat> yeah, I know. With a lot of patience. <laughs> yeah, I know. A lot of people. A lot of people uh, help pay their mortgage for quite a while. But, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> but you know, it's the same thing. It's like yeah. if I if I were to say to you, okay, well, um, you know, I think the uh, the Vaporfly Next Percent is the shoe that everybody should be wearing. It's complete nonsense because there's a lot of people who just won't suit and and it won't work for. Right. And they will not. They will not be able to exploit that shoe properly because they don't have the strength or the experience or the technique to be able to use right. that shoe properly because it's not really aimed at anybody other than fairly accomplished runners. That's, that's who it's designed for. Right. So we have to be careful with that. And we've seen, we've seen, we've fallen into that trap time and time again. I've got a great graphic that I use from time to time and yeah. you're talking about biomechanics and it's actually the, you know, it's the pyramid of what goes into a shoe and, you know, you've got, right. In, a, in an ideal world, right at the top, you've got biomechanics and then you've got socio, socioeconomic yep. responsibility, yep. Um, manufacturing techniques, etc. Well, the reality is right at the top of the pier is marketing and biomechanics is this little pimple that kind of sits on the side there. And that, that is the reality of, of the yep. way it works in the footwear industry that, you know, a lot, a lot of what we tell them, right. they don't listen to. You know, like, like Ben O'Neill has been telling the industry since 1977 that cushioning doesn't change impact forces, and it doesn't. It do, yeah, but, but we're still talking about it in 2020. We you are. Know, it's, it's bizarre. People, people also ask, like, and I've I've had people that have you know read what you've done, read the stuff that I talk about repeatedly, saying cushioning is does not does not decrease impact forces. Right? Those are independent things. And people, even from the footwear industry, ask that same thing. You know, right now, one of the things that we're going through in the industry seems like there's the tail end. I'm not sure if it's the tail end because people are still doing it, but this massive cushioning people going is this people are marketing and saying this is going to protect your knees it's going to protect your joints i'm sitting here going we have evidence that that it's not true and yet they still keep going on that and going like you know and but and people report that they feel better yeah and it, it's well, you know for 40 yeah. years we've had this pendulum swinging between motion control and cushioning and right, right now right now we're we're sort of 
being drowned in foam. We're in the foam phase right yeah. now. But, you know, it, it'll change again. And um, right. I, I, think, I think we shouldn't, you know, so cushioning is important, but it's important right. for different reasons. It's not, I think the, the thing is that people think, okay, well, it's going to reduce impact forces so I won't get injured. And that is categorically not the case. Right. So it's important for comfort, for example, step in mm. comfort. That's, you know, that's something we do pay attention to, but uh, mm. you have to be careful. Yep. So what, just to recap a little bit, some of the comments on recognizing that not everybody's going to be able to make use of a certain shoe. I feel like one of the keys is people need to realize that these, that footwear is a tool and not everybody knows how to use every tool. Not every tool is appropriate for each person. You have to go based on your experience, based on, on what tends to work better for you. That's how you choose which tool will be most effective for you. But people are going, Oh, well, I saw this guy use this. I'm just going to go do that. And I'm going to assume this is going to work for me. But is there, is there a way that we could phrase that better so people could understand that better? Look, I think that's a hundred percent correct. Um, it, it's not only, yeah, it is absolutely tall, a tool yeah. and it is actually some Aussie accent creeping in there. Um, it, it is absolutely a tool and um, people do need to be aware that just because you see reports in the media of the last five world records being beaten by a particular shoe, it does right. not mean that that's going to be the shoe for you. The shoe for you might be a very minimalist shoe if you are an accomplished, strong runner who likes to have a lot of ground feel, um, that, that could be the shoe for you. So the, the, the knack here is we have to understand the individual athlete. And this is something that's so important at a retail level because I'm absolutely convinced that one of the reasons we have not seen injury rates change despite vast improvements in footwear technology right. is because of what happens at a retail level. And I'm not having a shot at retail here. I'm just right. saying that I think that probably people go into a store and they get fitted with a shoe with all best intention and they come out of that shoe store and they think, geez, this thing feels really uncomfortable and I, you know, I don't, don't know about it. And Matt, that's probably because the process hasn't included things like assessing the comfort filter, assessing the noise filter, um, having a look at not whether the shoe is pronating or supinating, which I think is complete nonsense, but how does the foot sit on the platform? Is it sitting on the platform correctly? Is it collapsing in the midfoot? Is it making you adduct or abduct more, which is really, really important because those things feed through to potential injury mechanisms. And this is a, it's almost like an, it's, it's almost like an impossible task because retail and some medical are so embedded in the motion control paradigm, the fit to vertical paradigm that you must get the foot vertical which just doesn't it's, hold any water at all. You know? It hasn't so, held any water for years. And we know, well, those of us that look at this stuff know that, but. This is where, this is where I, should, I should play my famous video that I created in 1999 at great expense with the words motion control being flushed down the toilet yeah. with sound effects. <laughs> those of you, that's on, I forget where you, you posted that before. I can't remember if that was on Facebook. Uh, it's it's on, it's on, I think it's on YouTube. Actually. Yeah, if, if you, everybody needs to go watch that right now. That's very true that we need to, you know, and I hammer on this, right? Simon has obviously hammered on this for longer than I've been alive. <laughs> don't say that <laughs> yeah uh, sorry um that you know there's so many other things besides just looking at how the foot is pronating and supinating. those are normal motions right and there's so much more 
about how a shoe affects the foot than that. And yet, I think that's one of the, the issues. It's a, a problem with humanity, right? As we try to simplify things down to just one thing, and that, that's not how this works, right? There are so many other components you have to look at. And yep. it's especially like, again, stuff on the comfort filter or the, you know, the fact that people, you know, people move through these motion control shoes. People will move through things <laughs> no what you put them in. They're going to maintain the same motion, right? So, yeah. I, I think I think it's it's super important yeah. because re, retail has a responsibility to ask the right questions, and I think they're probably not asking the right questions. I mean, in the USA last year, you know, we had we had two thousand retail doors closed down, right. and people are wondering why that is. Well, it may well be because if you go to a retail store and they say to you, well, "What are you wearing now?" and you say, "Well, I'm wearing the Kano 24," and they say, "Well, here's the Kano 25. Proceed to the cash register." Why would you just do that online? Because yeah. because they're not they're not helping you right no nope. so the questions they need to be asking is that the first question they need to be asking is uh, are you currently injured and if your answer is yes then that's an immediate referral that's where it ends in retail so you have to go and get that sorted out um, before you before you buy a shoe right they have to ask they have to try to figure out how engaged you are so if you walk into the store and you're bristling with Garmin um, watches and you're you've got a, a copy of Runner's World under your under your arm then you know that's a reasonably engaged runner and they look fit. They look like a yeah. runner. If you've got somebody who kind of waddles in and they look a bit deconditioned and, uh, you know, they've been sitting in front of a computer for 20 years and they want to try to start again, which is the vast majority of reason people right. start to run again, then you have a responsibility to try to point them in the right direction of what shoe will be good for them. And a Nike Vaporfly next percent ain't it. That isn't the shoe for that person. Okay. Yeah. So, I've seen several people who their first running shoe is that is the Vaporfly or some marathon racing shoe. I'm sitting there going, is this comfortable? And they go, Oh, I was told I was going to run faster. And I'm asking, asking, is that comfortable? Like, no, I've had like, like all these injuries. I've, I've been told that running's supposed to hurt. And you're like, but to be fair, Simon, what you mentioned is something that you and I as clinicians do that we, when somebody walks in the door, our eval has already started, right? We're looking it up and going, what what is this person? What am I expecting to see? I'm trying to predict what my evaluation is going to look like, even before we start a subjective or objective eval. Um, that's that's exactly right. I mean, I, I try to teach my peers, um, you know, about about dynamic evaluation yeah. because the the you know the sort of default position for podiatrists is to get somebody in and immediately put them on the chair. Right. And and look at non weight bearing um, parameters, which right. which is I'm trying to say. Look, you need to try to figure out the mechanism that injured them in the first place, and that's going to be weight-bearing, so you need to go through a dynamic evaluation so you can try to figure it out. And that's like, for many people, that's like, holy cow, you know, that's like a revelation that I've never thought of that. But, of course, it's very logical, isn't it? I mean, that's that's really what you need to do. Right. And so I had, I was very fortunate to be that my uh, fellowship program was based through a, um, Maitland, right? See, everything good comes from Australia, right? In terms of looking at... It's from Adelaide, mate. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, Jeff, Jeff from Adelaide, yeah. That's great. That, ex that explains, that makes total sense, right? Everything good from Adelaide, not just <laughs> um, But it's looking at what we, we call the astrosome, like where, how did this happen? What brings your symptoms on? And a lot of times, I think a lot of clinicians, not just podiatrists, this is a, is a, a global thing of going, doesn't matter what, people just put them on the table and start looking at stuff going, yeah, ask, like, what brings their symptoms on? It's going to be usually in weight-bearing. That's how most people do this stuff, right? If they're a running athlete, your first thing should not be looking at them on the table because last time I checked, nobody runs on table, like, in, in like, supine or prone. So, 
I totally with you on that. And it's, it's hard to change some of those thought processes because we, a lot of times we are, we are taught this way in school and then to learn to go, no, no, no look at functional, functional first yeah. and let that yeah. guy. I mean, my, my question <laughs> would be if you've got, if you've got a retail store that's got a novice runner in and they're saying, well, you should get in the, in the Nike next percent because it'll make yeah. you f- run faster. Why, why aren't they just talking to them about tempo training? I mean, if that's what they, if they really, if they really yeah. think that person needs to go faster, not understanding that person may just want to run with their mates to keep a bit fit so they can eat pizza and drink beer on the weekend, right. which is often the case right. that they don't, they'll probably never race. They don't, they're not interested right. in racing. So you have to find all this stuff out. That's, sure. that's the important thing. Yeah. That's the engage. That's the engagement of the runner. You have to figure out their goals and that feeds back into the footwear selection process. Mm-hmm. One of the things that interests me, Matt, is that running, especially the advice we give, it doesn't yeah. seem to take any account of the aspirational side of running. So if you, if you start off as a, as a runner who's a bit mm-hmm. overweight and wants to lose weight, right. then, and, you, and you have your recommended shoe X, right? Mm-hmm. When you come back in six months' time, if you've stuck with it and if you haven't got injured, yeah. then, then you will have developed some technique. You will have lost weight. You will have got faster. Um, and so the shoe that you require in six months' time is going to be different than the shoe you started right. off with. It's a bit like if you're a professional golfer, are you still playing with the same clubs you learnt on? Probably but we not. don't have that discussion really, do we? It's, it's really no, interesting no. in running that it seems that it's a, we put people in little boxes and say, yeah, well, you know, that shoe worked, go to the next shoe in the same range. And I don't, I don't buy into that concept no. at all. I don't, I don't think that's it's not fair to the athlete and it's actually not using our brain very much in terms of what, what's available out there. Again, it sounds like it's, it parallels again, the, this, you know, a, a, like a, a evaluation, right. In terms of each time you got to go, Hey, you know, if I, if I saw you a year ago, right. We, you know, we got you through the stuff. Now you've been on your own for a while and then something else happened. You got to reassess where the person is. You can't assume that they're in the same spot. So you have to ask like, okay, what are your goals now? What's going on now? Because that they may be in a different spot, right? And I totally agree that that should be a question that we ask because their experience over their goals will determine kind of what is one of the many components of what we need to be asking to go. What, where do you, where should you be now? Yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. It's the yeah. it's the test the test retest philosophy that yep. you know. And and some people in uh, in my world hmm. they've never heard of that. What do you mean test retest? Well, if you've got somebody back in. So you should have a goal of treatment. And if you haven't achieved yeah. that goal after a month, you've got to retest it and you've got to right. change your treatment protocol. Otherwise, you're, you're wasting everybody's time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But well, these outcome measures and like I, my McKenzie, if you're listening to this, uh, I'm going to call you out um, that you've got to always have to like, you have to have something you can measure, right? Whether it's a performance because you want to be able to reassess what the effect either the shoe or your treatment is doing, right? So whether that may be a person's goal, like, hey, you started running faster, you're able to say interfere, all these different things, you have to find out what's important to them because that is one of the keys. Yeah, and I, I think, think, I think I, the, yeah. expectation, the expectation of the, of the client patient, yeah. um, it, you know, is also super important. So the, the educational side of it for, you know, we're talking globally here about our world of sports medicine, but also in, in terms of footwear recommendation, yep. You, they have to actually understand what's realistic and what's not realistic at the end point. So, what what is this what is this treatment or this shoe going to offer me? What what do, what do I what do I uh, expect from it? And that will really help them in in the short, medium, and long term because they they know what to expect, and that's I think really important. Yeah, very true. Um, 
I have a speaking of those who have been given the Vaporfly or some of these new shoes right away. Um, I have run into a large number of people who are training in these this new type full time. I was curious to know what you thought about that. Um, I know there's not a lot of evidence right now on on chronic use of these shoes in terms of how that affects the body long term. We talked earlier that we we don't know the answer about how we kind of know about how forces and we can theorize, but we don't really know how this affects people long term. What are your thoughts on training in them full time? Well, I think it's a, that's a really interesting question. Um, and without any uh, hard, cold answers, but I'll give you a little bit of what I know. Um, very interesting discussion I had um, with Benno and Darren Stefanishin from the University of Calgary um, many years ago when they were developing a sprint spike for Addo Bolton for the 2000 Olympic Games in, in Australia. And Darren in particular had done some really interesting work and he has published it, so you should, you should be able to find it. And what they did is they looked at varying the stiffness of the carbon fiber plates. So this is how far carbon fiber plates go back. They go way, way back. Anyway, they looked at varying the stiffness of the carbon fiber plate in these shoes and they were able to conclusively show that you were able to decrease the time it took to run 20 meters as you stiffen the plate, okay? So no doubt at all that the plate right. was making them run faster. But there's a vanishing point where you get to a certain stiffness and the time starts to increase. So there's a negative effect of the carbon fiber plate on these particular athletes. So my question is, radio, given that you've got a vast array of biomechanics, body type, body weight, technique, and you've got one homologous carbon fiber plate, how do you know that plate is suitable for you? How do you know that? And the answer is you don't know that. Right. So the next question is, is that plate going to make you run faster or make you run slower? And the answer is we don't know that. And the third question is, is that plate likely to cause a problem if you're using it all the time? Because we do know that it will change um, power outputs at certain joints, particularly the big toe joint, which is the most important joint in running. Right. Or maybe not. Maybe the ankle joint is the most important. But for what people are listening, they will know that if you if you change power in one joint, you're gonna you're gonna put it somewhere else. So right. you, you can't just create or destroy it. It goes somewhere else. So I, I have grave reservations about people who are using this shoe all the time because I just don't think we know enough about how it functions and right. and potentially where the load goes and how individual it is for for these runners. We simply don't know this. Right. Um, but my strong recommendation would be it's for race day, guys. It's yeah. not to train him. I totally I, I agree. And uh, hearing that kind of from you confirms that. Because, again, I think I've had a lot when I've asked people, and I'm actually working on potentially doing a survey to see what more people think about it. Because, again, at the moment, I can't test people in person, so i got to figure out what I'm doing for my research in this next semester <laughs> coming up. So come, uh, come, down, come down to Adelaide, mate. The pubs are open. The restaurants are open. Everybody's wandering around. The sun's yeah. shining. Are you guys letting? Are you guys letting Americans in? <laughs> no, we're not. That's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to comment on that since we're on recording, but I'm. <laughs> uh, but it's it's interesting that people seem to think that these are going going to be like miracle things where you're going to run fast all the time. You're going to like decrease your injury risk. The problem is, I don't think people understand that you, like you said, you can't create or destroy energy. It's got to go somewhere. There's some great research on there on. So on like kind of like more like rockered souls or like maximum souls being able to change, they will change where the load occurs, but they don't eliminate it. Right. So a lot of these rockered shoes, you'll see a decrease in load at the foot and ankle joints, 
but it's got to go somewhere. So you'll see increased work up at the hip and the knee, right? So it's got to go somewhere. And that yeah. the question is, especially with some of the new foams changing, potentially changing vibration or tuning, what is that going to do to muscles? Like, and so one of the questions that I've had from patients that ask like, oh, is if I train this all the time, am I going to run fast all the time? Or am I going to get slower as I go back to more traditional shoes? Am I going to lose strength because I'm not having the same variety of stimulus, which is my thought of going, Variety is key. We have enough evidence to suggest that having a variety of shoes may reduce injury risk, may being a huge asterisk sign, right, as for everything, just because you have a variety of stimuli. It's like cross-training, essentially. So why would you keep training in something that does these things, this does what you think? Yeah, I, I, I think there's probably pretty good evidence for yeah. mixing input signal yeah. now, Matt, um, not just yeah. with footwear, but with, with the way you train too. So. Yeah. You know, the, the analogy for me is I, I worked with a professional Australian football team for 18 months um, yeah. before I went to France. And, you know, they, they, they play um, a two-hour game um, once a week. They're not allowed to wear their football boots on the first major training session, and they pretty much don't play any football during the week. They do other stuff, like they play basketball and they play soccer and they do sprint drills and they do other stuff. Because, obviously, the body hates repetitive load, so you don't want to be doing the same thing all the time. And right. there's no better example of repetitive sport, repetitive load than than, than running. Right. Um, it's 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 the ultimate repetitive load. But you know, it brings what you're talking about here brings into into play the question of can you use shoes as a therapy, and it's something that that really interests yep. me for for sports medicine because we're talking about distributing loads and and right. changing them, and you know we understand with minimalism and zero drop shoes we understand it pretty well, so we know that those shoes. Uh, tend to, to decrease the the joint the external joint moment at the knee and they increase it at the ankle. Right. Um, and we know that if you wear a traditional shoe, then it tends to increase the external joint moment at the knee and decrease it at the ankle. So it doesn't mean that one's better than the other. It simply means if you've got florid patellofemoral syndrome, yep. why on earth wouldn't you do some judicious training in a minimalist shoe? Because it may right. well help you. Um, and But it's very interesting because for the clinicians out there, because it also begs the question, well, what we understand now about about titrated load for injured uh, yeah. tissue, particularly tendon, and if you've got an a mid-substance Achilles tendonopathy, well, you could probably make a case to say maybe you should be doing a little bit of very carefully monitored barefoot training or minimalist training because you will load the tendon. We understand you're going to load the tendon, but we have to keep a careful eye on it. But right. That's how, if you understand the yin and yang of all of this, then then you can actually start to think about shoes beyond performance or shoes beyond injury prevention and think about, well, I can actually use this as a tool because as you pointed out, that's all it is. It's just a bit right. of equipment. So I think this is where I'd like people to sort of think a bit beyond the marketing, I guess, and, and, and what we've all been told because there's a bit more to it than all of that. I think it's one, and I, I very much appreciate you, you saying that just because that's, that's something that I utilize in clinic all the time. I'm fortunate to live or not live, but the clinic's right up the street from a, from a running store. And then fortunately with the online stuff, we have enough access to that, that the patients can do that pretty quickly. And I utilize that all the time. I make footwear suggestions all the time in terms of going, Hey, you know what, if you, you know, for those of you that are getting a little bit older and you're losing that, that rate to extension, you may want to consider a rocker sole. You may want to consider some toe spring and explain that what them is. And a lot of times it works very, very well because it unloads that forefoot. And, Absolutely. and so getting people to think about these things as tools, not just either 
what the most people, the non-runners will view this as fashion statements versus the runners will view this as performance enhancers and going in the middle going, this, this is a tool, right? You have to figure out what works for you. And a, a massive toe spring in a shoe may work super well for somebody that ha, that may have limited motion for somebody else. It may be a huge detriment if that's your, your primary movement strategy of how you get forward. So, and again, yeah, that'd be, that'd, that'd be my, my go-to Matt. If I, you know, if I had somebody who had quite limited ankle, ankle joint dorsiflexion range of motion or first MBJ, um, yeah. um, dorsiflexion range of motion, I'd put them, I'd put them into a rock soil shoe straight away. And, and I think, you know, that's how all this started with the ultra yeah. marathon is it's like the, it's the half bicycle wheel model or the, exactly. the Rowena Gomez model that, yeah. you know, it's the model of perpetual motion. If you've got a rocker, then yeah. you will reduce fatigue. And if you're running the Leaderville hundred, right. <laughs> anything you can do that's going to right. help you get over those hundred miles is going to be beneficial. Now, speaking of ultra marathoners, I had a question I really wanted to make sure I didn't forget to ask you. So one of the things that you're making me kind of also do a self check, because a lot of times there are a couple things on, on the website I'll talk about. One of the, the negative things I almost always talk about is um, posterior, 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 posterior lateral heel flare and how I'm usually negative about it and need to acknowledge that may work well for some people. And a certain company right now has a couple shoes out there with a massive posterior flare. Mm -hmm. Is there any benefit to doing that? Because generally the way I've been interpreting is that going, that's going to increase more than a couple areas that I generally wouldn't like for the general population. Is there a positive way that can, is there always a positive and negative? Yeah, there, there always is. And I know that yeah. I know exactly the show you're talking yep. about. And, um, when I first saw that show, I just thought, what on earth are they thinking? Um, yeah. But I, to be fair, I have not had the shoe in my hand and I've not had a chance to test it. But, but the premise of that shoe is that the flare is supposed to assist in the downhill of trail running. So it's a trail running shoe. Right. So it's, it's supposed to assist on the downhill component of trail running shoe, uh, of trail running. Now, that's okay. If, so I can see how that might it might assist in some way because it would it would deform and it might slow down. Uh, it, it might assist Tibant in the yes. deceleration process. So that's okay. But my question is, well, what about that's one component of what you do when you trail run. So what, right. how does it affect the other components? And I can give you a great example here of years ago, um, a company um, who don't exist anymore, so I can name them, they're called Etonic. And they built a golf shirt. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And that golf shoe was really interesting because the left foot had a, the left shoe had a flare on the medial side of the midsole mm -hmm. and the right shoe had a flare also, uh, let me get this right, on the lateral side. So the idea is that as you go through the swing and your left foot pronates on the backward yeah. swing, um, that it would, it would help to stabilize the foot. Well, that's fine and that may well work for the golf swing, but it forgets the fact that you walk about six or seven kilometers during a game of golf and that shoe injured people in droves. It, oh, it yeah. really did. So it's what's happened is a few boffins got in the back room and I've been in this situation many times in yeah. my career and they've said, Hey, this is a great idea. How about we throw this one out? And they, they look at something in isolation rather right. than looking at it as the whole. And I, and I kind of suspect that that may well be the case with the, the shoe we're talking about, the trail shoe, but I, I, I need to, put the caveat that I haven't seen the shoe yet. I have read a few reports yeah. and for the most part, people say it seems to be performing quite well, but it, it does seem a bit extreme. And um, 
you know, I think uh, you, you just have to be a little bit careful about about doing things like that. <laughs> Again, that it sounds like it's the same concept. We're remembering that a shoe is a tool. And one of the issues that we seem to be having both in the industry and, and the consumer side is people thinking about things in isolation, whether that's this could put a huge, that huge flare saying it's going to improve this or that, whether it's just looking at the carbon fiber plates or just looking at the foams or just looking at the geometry, you really have to think about this. And you, that's not even including the person that's putting it on. You really have to think about the whole thing. And that's hard. That takes a lot of extra energy. It takes a lot of extra brain power. That takes a lot of extra time to ask about all those th- things. To go, how am I going to optimize this for this person? Yeah, how are we going yeah, to optimize yeah. the tool? It's much easier to go. Can we just make this one component and see what happens? Yeah, I, look, I think that's 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 exactly right. You know, I, I just was having a discussion yesterday on, on Facebook with a, a, a running group, and you know, this guy asked the question. Said, "Well, you know, if you're going into higher stack height shoes, is it going to yeah. make you more or less stable?" And everybody's going, well, of course, it's going to make you less stable. And I said, wait a minute, more, more or less stable of what? What are you talking about? Which structure? Right. Well, I didn't even say what structure. And they're all going, yeah, you know, more or less stable. And I eventually I said, look, I presume you're saying, will it make you pronate more or less? And that's a, that's a discussion that we shouldn't be having because we can't even define what too right. much or too little is. But you need to be thinking about what, is, what the effect is going to have at the hip, the knee, the ankle, right. and the foot. Because when you talk about more or less stable, You've got to define your parameters with footwear. You've got to understand what you're doing. Right. You know, I, we know how it affects the knee and the ankle and the right. hip quite well by increasing or decreasing the uh, the, the stack and drop heights. But right. this is the thing that people are so bound up in the motion control, the fit to vertical model that they can't see beyond that. And then we're still talking about it in 2020, which... Right. You know, sometimes it, I'm, I'm in despair that we would still be talking about this because it's not helping anybody really. Right. It's not. And even asking a simple question like going, hey, what, you know, how does the stack affect that? Well, that's only one thing, right? The, how, what do you, what's the last look like, right? So that last will also influence that, right? What's the drop? What's the length? All these other components are also going to affect stability. And you're asking, how does that affect the stability of what? Foot, ankle, hip, entire lower extremity, what do you, you have to define these things a lot more when you ask these questions. And, yeah. you know, that I'm, I'm very fortunate that, you know, that I've, I've begun to learn that in the, and you know that from all your work, right. From, from working and doing, being the trenches of, of footwork development and that kind of stuff. I'm lucky that in the, the, the PhD program, and they're always asking us, you have to keep asking the right questions and realize it's not simple and make sure you find everything or you're going to get torn apart when you either put something out there or, and that's, you got to ask, I think people need to maybe ask better questions. Yeah, oh, I think things. Yeah, I think it, it, it's interesting because yeah. it folds into the geometry question, and yeah, you know, we've 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 had this you know long history of things like dual density midsoles and yeah, rigid heel cups and all sorts mm. of cradles and things that have been put into shoes. But you know, the fact is that you can you can build right now. You can build a lightweight, very flexible shoe that has um, refined geometry that will be just as stable, whatever that means. Yep. Um, as as any so-called motion control shoe and you you do that with with the way the shoe is built in the geometry rather than adding stuff to the shoe because why why would you want a stiff heavy shoe nobody wants that um that 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 doesn't achieve anything at all you want the lightest most flexible shoe you can possibly deal with for your condition as an individual athlete for some people that'll be a brooks beast for other people it'll be a vibram five fingers so you just need to you need to understand that there's that sort of variability in in, in runners. 
So the next time anybody asks the question of which shoe is best for me, you should you guys should know that this is the kind of answer that you're going to get. Is that there's no there's no answer, right? Is I think uh, I think I think a short, sharp blow to the back of the head is probably the best way to deal with that. <laughs> I totally agree, right? I can't say that I can't do that over the internet or to people sitting in front of me. But <laughs> you think about it a little bit going. But hopefully, the hope is that people listening to this kind of start to understand how much more complex this is. And by understanding the different components of this, that they can start asking better questions instead of just going, what's the best shoe? Maybe they can ask, is there something that might work a little bit better for me based on X, Y, and Z? And really start thinking about themselves or the person standing or sitting in front of them so that we can just, again, move some of the past, some of this, these, you know, dyna- these archaic questions that keep being asked and start progressing and asking better questions because the goal is we're, the an- answers always give us more questions so how do we start asking better questions yeah for sure okay. i think i think the tendency for for all of us at you know professional level and, and, and a retail level is we we tend to want to put things in boxes mm-hmm. and when you look at footwear you know we've got four main boxes we've got motion control we've got cushioning we've got structured cushioning we've got neutral and none of those terms mean anything at all None of them, none of them make any sense at all. But we continue to talk about that, and and when you go into a lot of retail, that's the way their slat wall is, is, uh, is is done. So what it means is that you are you've put your runner into a box, mm-hmm. and running running isn't about a, a running a running is like coming to a T junction, and you've got to make a choice whether you go left or right. I mean, if you are improving as a runner and you want right. to go faster, then you you're going to you're going to need less shoe and be more flexible. If you've got biomechanical issues or you've got a history of injury, you're going to have to turn right because you'll need a bit more shoe. So right. it, it really is that, that concept of an avenue rather than a box. And, and I think this is the thing. So stop thinking about boxes. Stop trying right. to pigeonhole people into those different boxes and think about it a bit more holistically of what are you trying to do with this piece of equipment for your athlete within the confines of what that athlete is telling you um, or, or that runner is telling you. And, and that will make your practice a lot more rewarding and you'll probably get to a much more accurate uh, place with your footwear recommendation than you might otherwise. That is perfect. Well, Simon, thank you so much. I'm going to have to rewatch this and I'm going to spend probably a couple of years processing everything we're talking about. <laughs> but again, thank you so much coming, for coming on. It is a huge pleasure and honor to have you on here. Thank you, Matt. There's going to be a, a, a quid pro quo here because I'm going to ask you to come on to our uh, podcast and we're going to talk about physiotherapy and what's going on in your world. So be prepared. I, would, I, would, <laughs> I am ready. I'm excited. I'm ready for controversy and this should be awesome. We're going to oh, thank you so much. Cool. I will send you an email for sure. Okay. So we'd, we'd love to have you on the show. Thanks, Matt. I've really enjoyed it. We covered a lot of territory. So hopefully people have uh, enjoyed it. And thanks very much for having me on the show. Of course.